And if you need a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, we'll be happy to get you one. Anybody need a Bible? We are in Proverbs chapter 29. We're going to work our way all the way through the end of the book tonight. Anybody else need a Bible? If you'll raise your hand. But before we get started, we're going to pray and ask for God's blessing. Would you join me, please? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wonderful lessons that it contains, the words of truth, the words of hope, words of life. And Lord, we admit our need today. We, we need wisdom. Lord, we are, can be foolish people. We're prone to um, ignoring things we should see. We're prone to slipping into um, paths that are harmful. And Lord, we just need to be sharp. We need to, our faith needs to be crisp and ready. Lord, we just need to be alert to what's around us and to what uh, the dangers are and to what you want to do in our lives and in our hearts. So tonight, Lord, we ask that you once again instruct us in wisdom as we work our way through the book of Proverbs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rarely do Senate chaplains get involved in controversy. In fact, they usually keep a low profile, but not Chaplain Byron Sunderland. He served the Senate during the Civil War. In fact, once he invited a slave, Frederick Douglass, a former slave, to preach at his church, Washington's first Presbyterian. Quite a controversial thing in his day. In April 1864, Sunderland once again invited controversy. He opened a Senate session by praying the following prayer. Dear Lord, in your will and infinite wisdom, give to the rulers and legislators assembled in this Congress more brains. More brains, Lord. (laughs) Apparently, the need on Capitol Hill hasn't changed much over the last 150 years. Now, the great need in America and in our world today is wisdom. Not more data, not more education, not more philosophies, not more facts, but godly and biblical wisdom. Former President Herbert Hoover once said, Wisdom consists not so much in knowing what to do in the ultimate as in knowing what to do next. Wisdom is not just abstract or philosophical, it's practical as we've learned in the Proverbs. God's wisdom deals with the nuts and bolts of life. It emphasizes what to do next. Tonight we're going to finish this wonderful book. Beginning in chapter 29, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Now here's the most frightful feature of hell, your status there is permanent. Once you're in hell, there is no remedy. You know, no matter how bad life gets on earth, there's still always the possibility for change. But once you pass through the door of eternity, you forfeit any hope for an about face. Your fate becomes sealed. In Dante's Inferno, he writes over the gates of hell these words, Those who enter abandon all hope. Here he tells us that once the person is suddenly destroyed, then they have no remedy. Verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Here's another incentive for you Christians to get out to the voting booth and put righteous people in office. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. He throws away both his morality and his money. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. He flatters his neighbor. He butters him up. Now before I eat grits, I like to put butter on my grits. By the way, that's how you eat them. You butter up your grits. You don't put sugar on your grits. 
You know the surest way to tip somebody off that you're a Yankee? Is to put sugar on your grits. If you're a true southerner, you put butter on your grits, never sugar on your grits. But Solomon says, like a bowl of grits, before a man springs a trap on his neighbor, what does he do? He first butters him up. He flatters him. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. He lulls him to sleep, sets the trap by buttering him up. Verse 6, by transgression an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. In other words, he cares only for himself. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. Notice this. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. There was a psychological fad back in the 60s and 70s that advocated total disclosure. In other words, let it all hang out. And they had these encounter sessions where everyone in the group told each other exactly what they thought of each other. According to Proverbs 29, this is foolish. A fool vents all his feelings. Certainly it's good to have a friend with whom you can confide, with whom you can share your feelings, somebody that can help you work through your feelings. But to just spew out hateful and hurtful thoughts is both reckless and it's self-centered, and it's self-absorbed, and it's a horrible way to treat someone else. Quite frankly, we have no right to just say whatever we think. I'll never forget one Sunday, a fellow came up to me, and he wanted to apologize to me for the terrible thoughts that he had been thinking about me. I'm glad he stopped short of elaborating. I could have gone a long, long time without ever knowing that someone out there was thinking horrible and terrible thoughts about me. Hey, please, if you think terrible thoughts about Pastor Sandy, just don't tell him. Keep them to yourself. Now, if you think good thoughts about Pastor Sandy, it's okay. Go ahead and tell him. He'll be glad to hear it. But if a bad thought hasn't left your mouth then it's between you and God, not you and me. So keep it to yourself. I mean, here's the point. An unbridled regurgitation of our feelings can do irreparable irreparable harm. Not all our feelings should be verbalized. Restraint is still a virtue. Even in our society today, restraint is still a virtue. Verse 12, if a ruler pays attention to lies... All his servants become wicked. (laughs) In other words, a leader can't get caught up in innuendo and speculation or he'll think everybody's out to get him. He'll become paranoid. He says, the poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. In other words, it's not the absence of light, but whether our eyes are open or our eyes are closed that distinguish the poor man and the oppressor. He says, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You know, we used to think that it was vital for Kathy to be home with the kids when they were toddlers. But we soon realized that it was just as crucial, if not more so, for mom to be home with our teenagers. You see, it doesn't take long for a kid to mess up academically, socially, morally. Parents need to limit their kids' unsupervised time. A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You know, I read a survey not too long ago that most teenage sex occurs not after midnight in some parked car, but at home in the afternoon after school while the parents are still at work. A child left to himself. Verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, 
He will give delight to your soul. Sons particularly need correction. I've been there. I've done that. And you know, it's exhausting. After four uh, three sons, after three kids, and, and man, all of the discipline, and it's exhausting. You know, it's been a long haul. It's an exhausting job to discipline your child consistently and correctly. But notice the end result. This is hope. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Fathers, there's rest at the end of the run. Stay vigilant. Stay with it. Keep correcting your son. There's rest to come. One day you'll be able to kick back and you'll be able to relax and you'll be able to know you've done a good job. The end result, though, of not doing a good job is a lifetime of anxiety and worry and trouble. Verse 18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. You know, there's a similar verse in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. There the author sums up the spiritual climate at, at the time. He says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Boy, sounds like today, doesn't it? You know, we live in a time where the proclamation of God's word is a rarity. And without a prophetic voice, our world becomes more and more permissive. People today... As the proverb says, have cast off restraint. People today are like spoiled brats. They hide behind claims to personal freedom and individual liberties. But the truth of the matter is, is that they just don't want to be told, no, you can't. That's the truth. Man's pride doesn't like to concede that there's a moral authority greater than himself. We're told here, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Verse 19, a servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. This is why it takes the convicting and convincing work of the Holy Spirit to cause a man to confess his sins and bring him to a place of repentance. It takes more than, quote, mere words. Verse 20, do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's been said, a wise man thinks about all he speaks, A fool speaks about all he thinks. In other words, think before you speak. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. In other words, kindness and generosity breed loyalty. A servant or an employee whose boss has treated him like a son is liable to later treat the boss like a father. Verse 22, an angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. And the man's silence makes him an accomplice to the crime. He says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Understand, fear is your worst enemy. It's a trap. It stifles us, it cripples us. And it's not God's will for you to fear anyone. Your boss, your neighbor, your relative, your mother-in-law. It's not God's will for you to fear anyone. The Bible teaches us that perfect love casts out fear. You see, fear grows because I fixate on what a person can do to me instead of what I can do for a person. Love will drive out fear. Love will liberate the soul. Chapter 29 closes. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. Boy, human justice is flawed, is it not? God is the only author of perfect justice. He says, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Now, Proverbs 30. The words of Agur, the son of Jaka, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal. Now, now, the names in this verse are unknown. They could be proper names 
referring to men not mentioned elsewhere. But understand, the Hebrew names are also words with their own definitions. For example, agur means collector. Jaka means obedient. Ithael means with me is God. And yukal means enabled. So it is possible to interpret verse 1 here, translating the names as words. It would read as follows. The words of the collector. Solomon was a collector of Proverbs. The son of the obedient, or David. His utterance, this man declared to those who God is with, yes, who God is with, and who have been enabled by him. Now that's a possible rendering of verse 1. I like to think of them as actual uh, the author of this particular chapter, Agur. Verse 2 tells us what this man, Agur, declared. He said, surely I am more stupid than any man. At least he was honest. And do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. As we'll see, Agur was not a foolish man. In fact, he was quite wise. But you see, the mark of true wisdom is the realization of how little we actually know. You know, the more we learn, the more we realize there is to learn. And this is especially true when it comes to the knowledge of the Almighty. I've heard it put like this. The knowledge of God is so deep that theologian can never touch bottom. But so shallow, even a child will never drown. Here's the point. The knowledge of the Godhead is beyond our grasp. But the truth he reveals is simple enough that even a child can understand it. Now verse 4 reels off a few questions. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? You ever tried to grab hold of the wind? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? The questions here in verse 4 are much like the questions God fires at Job towards the end of Job's story. They were intended to expose Job's arrogance and, and, and his ignorance. They were designed to sort of whittle down his haughty attitude. In Job 38, verse 4, God challenges Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even gets sarcastic with Job. Tell me, Job, when we measured out the universe, were you, on, you were on the other end of the tape there, weren't you, buddy? I don't remember. Of course, Job was. And for 35 chapters in Job, Job, he questions God's fairness until the end of the book when God then comes and points out to Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. Well, we all need to get whittled down to size from time to time. We all need to be reminded who God truly is, how great He is, and how small we are. Albert Einstein enjoyed sailing. One day he was out on his sailboat with a friend. The two men were discussing the profundities of the universe when suddenly the great physicist lifted up his eyes to the skies and he stated, We know nothing at all. Our knowledge is but the knowledge of school children. And it's true. God doesn't communicate to us all there is to know. He only tells us all we need to know. Now verse 5. Every word of God, speaking of all we need to know. Here we go. Verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. The word pure here means tested and reliable. You know, the purer the metal, the stronger its resistance. Therefore, God's word is strong and sure. And notice, every word of God is pure. You know, there are academics today who say it's not the words themselves that are important in the Bible. The words themselves aren't inspired. Only the thoughts and the ideas in Scripture are inspired. The exact words don't really matter. That's not true. Solomon knows better. He says, every word is pure. Every word of this book is God's word. It reminds me of what God told Jeremiah in chapter 26, verse 2 of his prophecy. 
God told him, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command you to speak to them. Notice, do not diminish a word. Apparently, every single word of Jeremiah's prophecy was significant and important and inspired. Remember Jesus' statement, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The words of God are important. Here we're told every word of God is pure. Verse 6, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Remember the warning in Revelation 22 about human edits to Holy Scripture? Adding to or taking away from the Bible? You know, it appears in the last chapter of the Bible, it's as if God just sort of tacks it on to the whole of Scripture, to sort of put a capstone on the whole book. Let me read Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19 to you. It says, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I would suggest you not mess with this book. Verse 7 contains a wise and sincere prayer. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, there is a danger in having too little, and there is a danger in having too much. You know, too little could cause me to rip you off to feed my family. Too much could cause me to rip God off and deny Him praise. Only the Lord knows what we can handle. The prayer to pray is, Lord, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Verse 10. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. Boy, it sounds like Agur is pretty pessimistic about the future, isn't he? He's not too crazy about the younger generation. He sees his kids and his grandkids as disrespectful and as self-righteous and as judgmental and as angry and as greedy. It sounds like the attitude my generation had toward our fathers and mothers. You know, the youth of the 60s were so idealistic, weren't we? Oh my, we were self-righteous though and we were judgmental toward the post-war culture of our parents that is, until we got into the 80s and we suddenly started making money and the baby boomers reached positions of wealth and power. And, and what happened? The 80s became the decade of greed. You know, you know, it's so easy for a child to criticize a father until that child becomes a father. It's so easy for the younger generation to criticize the older generation until the younger generation becomes older. For the rest of the chapter, Agur is going to prove that he has an astute, that he was an astute observer of life. In other words, he's going to look around nature and he's going to provide us a series of illustrations. In essence, he's saying there's wisdom all around you, just wanting to be gleaned. You need to open your eyes, you need to see the lessons that God has embedded in nature. He says in verse 15, the leech has two daughters. Give and give. Got a picture of a leech. Isn't that gross? The leech has two daughters. Give and give. And these little leeches are like some people. They're nothing but blood suckers. You know any people like that? They just want to take and take and take. All that they're interested in is their own selfish priorities. Boy. 
You can think of a lot of people like that. You've heard the expression, the gimme generation. That kind of attitude's all around us. People who are never satisfied. He says there are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Here's one, the grave. The grave is never satisfied. Funeral homes are recession-proof. Have you noticed that? Inflation and unemployment figures don't affect the death rate. The grave never says enough. Or the barren womb. A woman who's barren continually longs for a child. She aches for a child. The earth that is not satisfied with water. Man, I can soak my lawn one day, and the next day it needs to be watered all over again. It never has enough. And the fire never says enough. The fire burns as long as it's fed. Proverbs 30, verse 17, is one of my all-time favorite Bible verses. After having raised four teenagers now, this is one of my favorite verses. Every teenager should be forced to memorize Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Hear ye, hear ye. This means that the teenager who bucks and kicks against their parents better stay inside the house. Because if you're a rebellious teenager and you're walking down a street and a flock of birds land on top of you and knock you down and start picking out your eyeballs, don't say, Pastor Sandy didn't warn you. It's right here in the Scriptures. According to this verse, every time a bird with a sharp beak flies over the head of a rebellious teenager without swooping down on top of them, God is showing mercy. That's right. Verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, yes, four which I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. An eagle soaring, a snake slithering, a ship sailing, and a couple sparking are scenes of mystery and marvel and majesty. Think of that last line, the way of a man with a virgin. Do you recall your first love? Your first kiss? Do you remember how you dreamed of this person? And when you were around them, your heart literally beat out of your chest? I mean, a mother begs her son to take a bath for three years. Suddenly he gets interested in girls and now he's showering and he's fluffing his hair three times a day. I mean, what is it about the sexes that cause us to react in that kind of a way? That stirs our emotions, that that stirs up our hormones and our passions. And it's amazing that God has designed us and has designed life to be so pleasurable and beautiful on the one hand and yet so astonishing and baffling on the other hand. He has other illustrations here. A huge eagle you would have a hard time picking up suddenly becomes weightless on the wings of the wind. How mysterious is that? A snake with no legs moves quicker than its prey. It's a mystery. A ship with a heavy cargo refuses to sink but instead glides across the surface of the water. All these things prove that life is this beautiful mystery that God has created for us to explore. In contrast, though, to a man with a virgin, verse 20 gives us a different picture. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. She denies that she's even sinned. How can people who were once so innocent become so calloused? As Agur observes, life is both amazing in its beauty and in its ugliness. He says, for three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. And here Agur reflects on life's irritations. And boy, life is full of irritations. Here's the first one that frustrates him. A servant when he reigns. In other words, this is authority without character. 
authority without character. You know, a man who's been a servant, he's used to taking orders. Suddenly, he's now giving those orders. And if he doesn't learn to handle authority, he'll misuse and he'll abuse his power. This becomes an irritation and a frustration. Here's another of life's frustrations. A fool when he is filled with food. This is wealth without work. You know, a man inherits some money. You know, or he's given money by his father. Oh, this fool, he can eat all right, but his job is not high on his list of priorities. In other words, he's good at eating off another man's table. And you will never maintain prosperity without knowing what it took to obtain prosperity. The next irritation he mentions is a hateful woman when she is married. This is relationship without responsibility. Here's a gal who goes out of her way to catch a husband. She's nice and she's thoughtful and she's caring. It's all about her man until after the wedding. Now all the responsibility rests on him. Here's a woman who wants a happy home, but she's a hateful wife. It's frustrating. The final embarrassment or frustration he mentions is a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. This is promotion without preparation. Here's a woman who suddenly goes from washing dishes to hosting parties. She's thrust into a position that requires some charm and some culture, but she's never been trained. The maidservant is ill-equipped. She's eager, she's enthusiastic, but she's oblivious to the issues and to the rules of the game. Once again, this is a frustration, promotion without preparation. Verse 24, there are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. And here the author turns to the animal kingdom. Now if this agur, or the collector, was actually Solomon, it would be consistent with his resume. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we're told Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Evidently, King Solomon was an expert in zoology. And so he would be equipped and have the knowledge to point to these these animals, and the lessons that, that they teach. Here he points to little creatures who are extremely wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. You know, ants are wise enough to store up food for a rainy day. They mooch off summer picnics so they'll have plenty to eat on Christmas Day. There's a lesson we can learn there about storing up, about having some savings, about putting some away for when we need it. Then he mentions the rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. Rock badgers are also known as coonies or hyrax. And today these little rock badgers are all over Israel. They're fat, they're furry, they're cute, they're cuddly. They're slightly larger than a chipmunk. But the rock badgers, you see, are extremely vulnerable to predators. This is why they survive by hiding in the rocky, hard-to-reach places. David, in some ways, was like a rock badger. You remember what he wrote, Psalm 61, verse 2? He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. When you think about it, we too are vulnerable to dangers and to hurts and predators. That's why we need to run and take shelter in Jesus, in our rock. Here's another uh, lesson from a little thing. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Locusts don't need a king to enforce submission and cooperation. They know the value of organization intuitively. The locust intrinsically understands rank. He knows his place. The locusts all work together to accomplish their goals. Wow, how we can learn a lesson, how we could get organized, and, and how we can uh, find our place in the body of Christ. And then finally, the spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it is in king's palaces. 
the spider squirts adhesive that allows him to attach himself to walls and ceilings. He knows how to hang on and persevere. He joins this list of little creatures that teach big lessons. Well, verse 29. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. Now Ephesians 4 instructs Christians to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You remember that passage. Our position as a child of God is a gift of grace. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. But once we receive it, we are expected to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You can do nothing to become a Christian, but once you become a Christian, you need to act like it. And here we're given some insight into how to adopt a godly walk. First, you need the stride of a lion. You need to be bold and courageous and fearless. Do we have a lion? There it is. Second, you need to run like a greyhound. You need to be quick to obey and do good. Third, you need to stand like a goat. You need to be steady and reliable and avoid slip-ups. Go home tonight and tell your spouse that, Honey, I need you to be more like a goat. And then fourth, you need to march like a king with his troops. You need to be confident and you need to be full of faith. Hey, put it all together and you got a new dance, the believer shuffle. A lion's stride, a hound dog's run, a goat's crouch, and a king's march. Verse 32 warns us. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. If you've been boasting or bucking God's will, man, you need to shut up and repent. Can he say it any clearer? He says, for as the churning of milk produces butter and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. Apparently you can learn a spiritual lesson even from a bloody nose. Chapter 31. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now the Old Testament records the kings of Israel and Judah. And Lemuel does not appear in any of the lists. Jewish sources identify Lemuel with Solomon. Apparently it was his mother's pet name for him. If King Lemuel was Solomon, this makes for a fascinating scenario. For remember Solomon's mother was the infamous Bathsheba. The bathing beauty that became David's partner in adultery and murder. What makes this provocative is that Bathsheba then would be the author of the passage on the virtuous woman. She's the one writing to King Lemuel. Perhaps in the years after she had thrown away her virtue, she learned to appreciate and admire its importance in a woman's life. It's just interesting. The ironies here, to me, they're amazing. Now she speaks in verse 2. What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows? Uh, by the way, Lemuel means devoted to the Lord. Here's Bathsheba's advice to her son, verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. Wow. Who better than Bathsheba to speak on this subject? Her husband, David, had put his lust for a woman ahead of his love for God. And, and it nearly brought down his kingdom. And she was a party to this disaster. And she's warning her son not to give your strength to women. Guard your heart, my son. Understand, adultery is never worth the price. You're swapping a few moments of pleasure for years and years of pain. 
Don't give your strength to a woman. Remain strong in the Lord. Pursue and seek after God. You know, sadly, Solomon wasn't listening to this advice. His downfall was the same as his dead. He multiplied wives and he married pagan women. And it was actually out of Solomon's harem that idolatry gained a foothold in Judah. Well, she continues, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. In other words, alcohol is not for people in positions of authority and leadership. You know, a king can be called on in a moment's notice to make a decision of national importance. The country can't risk its leader being a little tipsy or his mind being fuzzy. That said, with all the cocktail parties in Washington, D.C., and now all the beer guzzling over at the White House, no wonder we're in such a wreck. This is also why the New Testament makes alcohol off-limits to pastors. Pastors, too, are in a position of leadership and have to make uh, instant judgments and decisions. How, how would you like to call your pastor one night and, and, and need some counsel and find that he's drunk or he's suffering from a hangover? That's why pastors are not to be given to wine. We're told, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Here's the only good use for alcohol. It's a great anesthetic. It dulls the pain and it causes pain. That's about all it's good for right there. Verse 8. Open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die. If ever there was a verse commanding us to speak out against abortion, this is it. To speak for unborn life this is it. Every year, millions of unborn babies are appointed to die, and none of them are able to speak for themselves. So you open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of those appointed to die. But that's not all. He goes on. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. You see, abortion is not the only social issue that should concern us. Christians should also speak out against poverty. And injustice. This is why it's naive to equate God's agenda with the Republican Party. You know, I'm glad that the Republican platform is pro-life. But on issues like justice and poverty, it could be that at times Democrats have more of a godly perspective. You know, personally, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I'm a Christian. And, and I... I suppose politically I'm probably independent. But rather than voting along party lines, I always want to remain free to cast a biblically informed vote, a godly vote, not just a vote along party lines. Well, verse 10, here it is. We've been waiting for her. <laughs> We've been looking for her. Here she is. Not Miss America. Better than that. The virtuous woman. Verse 10 begins, Who can find a virtuous wife? Now throughout the Proverbs, we've been warned about the perverse woman. We've been warned about the contentious woman. It's good to know that there's an alternative, isn't there? There are women who love God and know how to love a husband and raise a family. They're not controlled by worldly fads and fashions. They're not addicted to comfort and conveniences. They control their tongue and they reserve their passions. They're gracious and they're kind, even at home. There are some virtuous women in this world. Yeah, good. Jerry, you must have found one. You know, for single... For single men, I wish I could say that the market was glutted with virtuous women. But that's really not true. Not in Solomon's day and not in our day today. You know, even the writer of Proverbs admits, for her worth is far above rubies. In other words, a virtuous woman is a rarity. She's like a precious jewel. This makes her extremely valuable. I was always told, if ever I found 
a woman described in Proverbs 31 that I should marry her immediately. And when I found her, I did exactly that. But here's the good news. I don't think she was the last. And so if you're single, pray and look. And the next few verses, the next few verses will describe what you should be on the lookout for. It's interesting, in the original Hebrew, these last 22 verses form an acrostic. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each of these verses begins with a succeeding letter of the alphabet. In other words, uh, Bathsheba is wanting Solomon to memorize this description so that when he sees her, he'll know this is the woman for him. Verse 11. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. You need to find a woman you're not worried when she goes to the store with the Visa card. Somebody you can trust. You know, the man who married to the virtuous woman, he, he and his wife are on the same page. She voices her opinion, but she submits to his leadership. There's no competition in their relationship. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Notice her commitment to her husband is for life. She's a lifelong blessing. She takes wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. In other words, she's got a sewing machine. And she catches the specials at Cloth World. And she even makes clothes for her kids. She doesn't even know what the latest designer labels are called. She does this herself. Verse 14. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Watch her pull into the driveway with the groceries. Her boat is full of provisions from that distant land called Kroger. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She's up before daybreak packing lunches for her kids to take to school, giving them snacks in the middle of the night. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. She's even got a few tomato plants she keeps up, just so the family can have fresh tomatoes from time to time. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. A couple of times a week, she's down at the fitness center. She's doing the aerobics. You know, she's firming up. She perceives that her merchandise is good. And her lamp does not go out by night. She's up late at night, clipping out coupons or surfing the internet, looking for the latest deals. She's trying to stretch the funds. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. In other words, she's not too proud to even wear her own homemade outfit. And she'll work, and she'll sew her own outfit if need be. Verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. Now check her out. She, she's up to her eyeballs in taking care of her family, but she's not too busy to come up to the church and help Marvin with the disciples' dinner on Thursday night. I mean, she's, she's full of compassion, this woman. Not just for her own family, but for others as well, for the poor around her. She's not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household is clothed with scarlet. No, she keeps good tires on the car, just in case it snows. And while she watches television, the reality shows and all, she knits little scarves for her family to wear when it gets cold. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. This woman makes her husband the envy of every man. They gawk and they talk and they wish they had a wife as good and godly as his bride. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Now on top of everything else she does, this virtuous woman has a part-time job that she works to bring some money home to help her hubby pay the bills. She's industrious. She's opened up a startup business here. She's got a little cotton 
we need. And here's where we need some balance. For we often point to passages where the teaches that the wife's focus is homework, and indeed it should be. Just as a man's work should be his orientation. But if that doesn't mean that the husband can't help with housework, would anybody say the husband can't help with housework? If it doesn't mean that, then it doesn't mean that a wife can't make a little money and help with the finances. And so here the virtuous wife, she finds a way to help with the family's income. Verse 25, the women can honor all her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She's not a complainer. She, she has an optimistic view of the future. She rejoices in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Her kids and even her husband seek her out for advice and for counsel. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She has no idea that Oprah is even on TV. She doesn't even know what a soap opera is. Verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her kids brag on this mother. When her daughter grows up, she wants to be like mom. When her sons grow up, they want to marry women like their mom. And to top it all off, she's all her husband can talk about. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. I mean, the guys at work get tired of hearing about this wonderful wife. Verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Her complexion will weather, her skin will sag, her hands will wrinkle, but she'll never lose her beauty. For her attractiveness is on the inside. She will be gorgeous for time and eternity. Always remember, a pretty shell doesn't necessarily make for a tasty nut. what's on the inside that counts. Nobody treasures a gift because of the pretty wrapping paper. We value what's on the inside. And then the last verse. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Here's a final word to husbands. Men, if you are married to a virtuous woman or at least a woman who aspires to be, Never take her for granted, for she is more valuable than rubies. Pamper her. Praise her. Respect her in front of the kids. Brag on her to your buddies. Most of all, love her with all of your heart. For that, gentlemen, is great wisdom. There we have the book of Proverbs.